0: Mark chapter 12. Yeah, if everybody came to church with these zoomies that Timber has, like, we would have a whole different kind of environment around here. He is revved up. Yes, just have a little track. Uh, So Mark chapter 12, we're going to pick up in verse 18. The context is Jesus has come into the temple. He's been met by the priests, scribes, and elders. And in verses 1 through 12, they challenged his authority. He responded with the parable of the vine dressers. In other words, we're not, I mean, he's not going to bicker authority. Jesus is not human authority. He's the owner himself. And so it's not an issue of who's got more authority. It's, we'll get, we'll, let's talk about ownership, not authority. Verses 13 through 17, the challenge was a legal premise of paying taxes. This is a concern for politics. Uh, Jesus is not about hot topics in the news. He's about heavenly obligations. And they're two totally different discourses. So he's going to keep doing the same thing. Um, he, you know, he's establishing things here that really are the roots of the church and church theology. He's, he just established the separation of church and state. Think of the impact on that, on human history, 2000 years of human history, the idea that church and state might be two different domains. Jesus came up with that little gem, uh, and it's been fairly good for human history, um, Again, this is a schol- these are a series of scholarly I- interactions. And I think sometimes whenever we think we're going to get into a conversation with somebody and it's maybe a confrontational conversation, one of two things happen. One is that you either become like a panicked squirrel. I remember as a bus driver, you'd get squirrels that would try to play that game where they run in front of the vehicle. And then they see the vehicle like, oh, surprise, there's vehicles out here. And they'll like freeze up and look at you with their little squirrel eyes. Please don't hit me. And they don't know what to do. They don't know if they should run, if they should jig, if they should, you know. And sometimes they get out of it and they probably earn a little squirrel badge with their squirrel club. And sometimes they don't get out of it. They just get hit by the bus and flop around a little bit. <laughs> Part of what this is, is I, when you're in the middle of a panic situation, we tend to freeze up. And that happens in these conversations that are about spiritual thoughts. So part of Mark chapter 12 is to train us for those conversations so we don't freeze up. And Jesus, of course, is the role model of how to do that. He's going to get a challenge to the idea of resurrection next, which is a really, if you want to generalize that, he's being challenged on the supernatural itself, that things that are supernatural can even happen. And how he responds to these, for me, I guess, part of what I love about this is that, I love the scholarly elements of this, and it's part of why I don't want to speed through chapter 12. This is important as to how we think and how do we do it. Some people don't dig this as much. Like, if you can avoid the scholarly debate, you just do. And that's awesome. Um, and I think the Bible has things for different kinds of people, and I, I hope there's gems in here for everybody today, but um, I really, I look at this and I just think of how rich this is. I don't think Jesus sat and prepared for it. I think the Holy Spirit's just given them the right words to say at the right time. And that's the promise we have too, that when we go into those kinds of conversations, when we go before governors and rulers of this age, the Holy Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit will be there to give us the words. But what we do need is, I think, the model of Jesus and the framework to go into these with. So I don't know exactly what to say in these situations, but I know how to frame it. And that's why I was kind of like... They come at him with the challenge to his authority. He comes up with heavenly ownership and authority of everything. They come at him with the taxes question. He comes back with heavenly obligations. Most of these conversations are about fleshly thinking versus heavenly thinking. And if I just have that framework, I can handle most most conversations. You're thinking about this world. I'm thinking about the heavenly world. You're thinking about the things of the flesh. I'm thinking about the things of God. And if we can just establish that we're coming at topics from different places, you're going to come out of most of these as smoothly as Jesus did. So we'll start in verse 18. We'll pick up from there. Then some Sadducees Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave offspring. The third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. Therefore, in the resurrection, which they don't believe in, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had had her as a wife. How's that even possible? So the the Sadducees are aristocrats, they're wealthy, they're elite, they're on top of the world, they're the PhDs and the presidents all in one club, right, and the CEOs. Um, Rome allowed the local culture to have rich folks, but those rich folk had had to bow to Rome. So when you see Sadducee, you know they're bowing to Rome, you know they're in, in cahoots with them. They're smart people, they've had all the education, they have all the titles, they have all the paper on their wall. Um, We also know that their goal with that smartness was to impress people because they had a role in society. We still have these people around. We just don't call them Sadducees anymore. At the end of the day, they're so successful in this world that they're failing as they think they're smarter than God. They think they've got this God stuff all figured out more so than what the scriptures say. So they start with assumptions and presumptions. Their major assumption, which is said in verse 18, that there's no resurrection, Broader than that in the first century, the Sadducees didn't think there was anything supernatural. There's no angelic world. There's no spiritual life. There's no, really everything short of there's no God, but that God's not doing anything supernatural. Everything can be explained through natural phenomena. We have those people today. Like this hasn't changed, right? So in that sense, not believing in anything supernatural, they think when they die, they're just dead and there's nothing left. And so they live, and I think there's no hope. This is why they're sad, you see. (laughs) (laughs) Only observable things are things they do. When you die, you're dead. So the Bible doesn't say all this, but they say it in verse 18 with that really short phrase, who say there's no resurrection. And this is about resurrection. They came to him. We do well to note that when you're speaking the truth, you don't have to go looking for fights. They'll come to you. If you're bold and you're standing on the word of God, people will come to you and challenge you on that. Just, you don't have to go finding it. They come to him. Verse 19, they call him teacher. We've seen that before. It's false flattery. They're calling him a teacher, but they're not listening to his answers. Therefore, he's not their teacher, right? So, yet, at the same time that they're doing this and they come with this gotcha question, we have had two major authority groups come and call Jesus the teacher in the middle of the temple courtyard. So they're giving him the title he deserves, even though they don't believe it in their heart. And I think that's, I think that's supernatural. I think that's something that they're doing almost beyond their control. Um, but he will have that title when he's sitting in that temple. Uh, Moses wrote, they, they, part of this, uh, the Sadducees is they don't read any of the scriptures that they have, except for the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So this is part of Sadducee tradition, all the prophets, all the books of wisdom, all the histories, none of that did they see as God's word or God's scriptures, only up through Moses. So for the Sadducees, God has been essentially silent since the time of Moses. And God has been silent for 400 years. Since Malachi gave his prophecy at the end of the Old Testament, there is really a 400 year gap where there really hasn't been anything supernatural happening. And so... They believe this in a context of where they haven't, within a generation, within many generations, they haven't really seen anything. And so that, then you, th- these kinds of people tend to rise up when they don't have evidence to the contrary. So, if a man's brother dies. So, they're referencing a passage in Deuteronomy 25. If you want to go there, you can. I'm going to read it to you just so you have context. Uh, here's the law. It's, it's where we get the term brother-in-law. Because you're a brother-in-law. So there's a legal obligation for brothers to take care of women in the household. And if you've got a brother that doesn't have any descendants or kids, descendants and kids would take care of that woman in the household. As they grow older, they'd provide for their mom. But if there's no kids, there's nobody to provide for the woman. So this is actually one of the more graceful things in the ancient world. You don't just throw people out. You take care of them. So Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies... If brethren dwell together and one of them dies and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to him as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to to her. The duty of a brother-in-law. This is not how we think of brother-in-law. And it shall be that the firstborn which she bears shall succeed in the name of the brother which is dead. In other words, the name of that brother is not going to die just because there was a belief that if you died early, that was a curse. And so this law kind of counters that a bit, that that family name is going to be the land allocation of Joshua. It's very particular to the nation of Israel. It's particular to those land allocations that God did. You can go back and listen to Deuteronomy if you want more on that. But it's the law of Leverite marriage, or what we would call the the brother-in-law husband. Um, The context is simply to maintain the family claim on the land. This is not a passage about resurrection. Just to point that out, Sadducees are taking passage that has nothing to do with the topic they want to address. So they're misusing the Bible. They're selectively reading the Bible, only picking certain passages that they like. And then they create a hypothetical situation. Have you ever been in these conversations? Right? They're not looking at the whole council. They're misusing what they are looking at and then they want to create a hypothetical situation which is pretty unrealistic that doesn't really happen. So common legal tactic is to stretch a law to see how flexible it is. If this is a good law, it should hold up in a variety of situations. So they're using a legal claim or a legal argument and they're pushing that law to the extreme. They reword it, they can condition it or you can throw the law out if it doesn't work under a variety of situations. The problem is, When God wrote Deuteronomy, he also set up a system of judges, or the first time in history they had a judicial system. The judicial system, frankly, looks almost identical to the American judicial system. They had local courts, they had higher courts, and they had kind of a supreme court of the elders. So in all these situations... When God set up the law, he also set up a priesthood of judges that would administer that law in these weird, freaky situations. And then they could know the spirit of the law to administer it in the way they think God would want to do it. So another problem with how the Sadducees are doing this, they're not applying it. If there was a weird situation with seven brothers, a judge would would come in and deal with that situation appropriately, right? The wife would probably not get handed off to seven different guys. Like we're already way past where a normal common sense judge would let that keep happening, right? At some point, you'd say to the poor young lady that maybe it's just time for you to be in this family and you don't have to worry about the next husband coming down the line. So hypothetical, and I'm going to use the word absurdity because I've seen a lot of this, and I think you guys have too. When you create an imaginary situation that's frankly absurd, it could happen. This could happen. What are you going to do with this possible happening situation? I don't feel the need to respond to those. That's a hypothetical absurdity. I'm not going to deal with absurdities. I want to deal with life, the life I live and the life you live. So if seven people had her, the idea is they're testing the absurdity of, a, of an idea. What if somebody could, uh, let me do this in a few different, let me just use this in different arguments. What if, what if somebody could live off of rice for an entire year? What if that's possible? What if they could do it? Then is nutrition a real thing? Do you really, do you still believe in nutrition? Right? It's the same argument. Or if somebody says a prayer of salvation on their deathbed, is forgiveness really a real thing or does God have any discernment whatsoever? It's the same argument. Here's another one. What if somebody, I I know I love hitting the hot button sometimes. We got a great group. What if somebody got impregnated against their will and the mom's at risk can they still get an abortion? Is abortion then okay? And what they'll do is create a hypothetical absurdity, which is 0.01% of all situations. And instead of bringing common sense and mercy and judge discernment into that situation, they'll say, well, then you can't have a law against this thing because it doesn't hold up under a hypothetical absurdity. That's bad legal thinking. You still put the law in place. Like Just because you can kill somebody and get away with it doesn't mean murder is okay. So you still make a law against the thing. And then in the hypothetical absurdity situations, if, and when they come up, you go to a courtroom and you ask for a a pass on those situations. That's how law works. It's how judicial worked in, in law. worked in Deuteronomy. So I'll give you the spiritual ones too. Like why do good things happen to bad people? Maybe God doesn't understand justice. Why do bad things happen to good peoples? Maybe God doesn't understand mercy. Like, you can't throw out major concepts because of hypothetical absurdities or exceptions to the rule. Um, what if, like, what if, like, you think in your theology that people are just going to go poof in the rapture? Well, I haven't seen anybody go poof, so maybe that's not going to happen. Here's another one. This is see, thinking. I shouldn't poison you with so much of this. People don't walk on water. That's impossible. That can't happen. So you must, you must not understand how the context of this writing. We've got to manipulate it and change it right? What about the pygmy Amazonians in the middle of Australia who haven't heard about Jesus Christ? Like, how are you going to possibly deal with those people in heaven? How is God, like, that's not fair to them. They've never heard of Jesus. How do they get saved? They don't have a chance of salvation. That must mean God hates those people. Hypothetical absurdities. Grant, you were counting up the ways in which that was wrong. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) What do you all do about the contradictions in the Bible? There's so many contradictions in the Bible. If there's all those contradictions, how do you trust the word of God? Hypothetical absurdities. Show me. And and so how do you deal with these things? All right. So first, if you want to keep a discussion going around a hypothetical absurdity, you can if you want to. But what you're going to find is your opponent is mocking you, deceiving you, or scoffing you. There's not a heart-to-heart friendship going on here. This is an attack tactic from legal minds. And in this sense, that's exactly what the Sadducees are doing. They're attacking Jesus. There's no effort to find good judgment or common sense or even better thinking. This is not a reasonable argument because they've started with with a hypothetical absurdity. So you're not going to have a—you can keep this conversation going, but you're not going to have a conversation that's fruitful. Because there isn't a heart there that wants to bear fruit. And so we'll look at how Jesus does this, but I I think what you'll find with Jesus as we get into his answer is that he doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about the preposterous situation. He changes the topic, and he's already done this a few times. You want to talk about authority? I want to talk about ownership. You want to talk about taxes? I want to talk about the kingdom of God and what you owe to God. So moving from the earthly to the heavenly has been something Jesus has done twice, showing us how to have these conversations. You want to bicker about people walking on water? I want to know the God that makes people walk on water. I'm interested in that conversation. So mm-hmm. therefore, in verse 23, it says, therefore. Um, it, the therefore is an odd thing because they're using a rational word, or a, a uh, in the Greek, this would be a... a a discourse word that gets used as though they've made a point, but they haven't made a point. They've made a hypothetical situation that's never actually happened in a lab. It's never, to our knowledge, it's never happened in human history. So one way to deal with it is to point out that verse 23, when somebody says, therefore, therefore, I have a clue. There's no there. Where's your there? Show me the rice eater. Show me the the person that's praying on their deathbed, and I will call me over. I'll be there right away. Like, show me that situation, and we can have a conversation. But I can't have a conversation that doesn't exist, right? So again, show me the show me the young lady that's been a pregnant against her will, and we'll bring her to church. We will take care of her. We will bless the heck out of her. Like, but I need to know who she is it's not a hypothetical person. I want a real person that I can love, care for. And as a family, we can deal with that situation with good judgment and good discernment. Verse 23, whose wife will she be? That's their gotcha question. It's a cynical question. If the resurrection's real, then explain that. Ha ha, we got you. So the temptation here is to enter into that absurd defense for the absurd situation. Don't do that. Resist that temptation. Um, the law here isn't addressing the after- afterlife, and it's a misapplication of the law entirely. It's not the point of it. Verse 24, Jesus answered them and said, are you not therefore mistaken? You're mistaken. You've got the whole thing screwed up. You're mistaken. He doesn't deal with the, He doesn't answer their question because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. That's your mistake. So he just takes it to that bigger level for when you, for when they rise from the dead, they're neither married or given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You therefore are greatly mistaken. He notice how he bookends it. You're mistaken. Ah, you're greatly mistaken. So let's look at this idea. Again, if you do want to engage with the people that are doing this, I think it's okay to say, you're just wrong. Like there's nothing like, I think we want to make people happy so much. Sometimes we forget that when somebody comes at you with a gotcha question, it's okay to just say, you know, you're screwed up. (laughs) You got your whole brain is mixed up. Name it for what it is. Their intellect has actually caused them to be fools. And we talk, and this is in Ecclesiastes, it's in Proverbs, it's in the books of wisdom. Very, very smart people can think themselves into absolute idiocy and they're greatly mistaken, but they're so far in their own intellect that they're mistaken with confidence, which is dangerous. So two reasons he gives, let's read this really carefully. Uh, Verse 24, they don't know the scriptures, which is a limited reading of God's word. They only read the Torah and a limited understanding of God. They don't really give God credit for what he's capable of. So you can read libraries of books and make mistakes that that they just, you can take an entire library of Christian theology, and it's not the authority that the Bible itself is. It's just not. So you can read all the books on that bookshelf and, and get a slice of what the Bible has to offer. It's not even comparable. It's not on the same thing. And, and for me, at least, to know the scriptures, we're called to know the full counsel of the word of God. This is why it was devastating to me when I was meeting young people that are like, oh, I've never read the Bible. That's tragic. What's going to happen to the church if we have generations of people that haven't read the book? How do you expect to call yourself a believer if you don't even know what it means? So knowing the full counsel of God, their unwillingness to read more than the Torah then becomes an issue that Jesus goes right at the heart of it. You think you're right because you won't read God's word. And then he, start, he cites the Torah. I think this is great. Legally, he responds with a passage that's from the Old Testament, from the Torah, the five books. And they don't use it, so there's no anchor of truth, but Jesus meets them where they're at at some level. The second thing they got going wrong is they don't get the power of God. God can transform people, and heaven isn't just another version of earth. It's essentially different. They're applying earthly rules to a heavenly existence. So I think one of the things the enemy loves to do is give us an image of heaven that l- looks like a supercharged version of earth, right? And, and, and I joke about it, but like the idea of being like the bear zookeeper is, is simply a, a, an exciting version of what I've experienced here on earth. I love bears. I think they're cute. I think they'd be fun to ride. I think they'd be fun to snuggle with at night. But heaven's going to be so much more. There's going to be so much more to heaven that God's power can actually transform us. As Christians, we feel him slowly transforming our heart the day we give our life to him. And he's moving and doing something different. As mature Christians, we look back at that process and go, wow, I'm not the same person I used to be. God has changed me. He's taken away the desires for evil things and put in my heart a desire for like food on Sundays right? That's what I, I live for. Fellowship, worship, faith, and, and, and the word of God itself. So the power of God to transform, 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Peter 1, God's power to transform becomes something that he has promised. Resurrection is a promise. And it's much more than just getting raised from the dead as you currently are. You're going to get raised from the dead in something that God intended you to be. He didn't intend for death to happen. That was part of the curse. So he's undoing the curse. That's all resurrection is. But the transformation that's promised, that's even better. And that transformation starts the day you choose to follow Jesus Christ. Well, that's not shiny. I want big white wings and a golden halo, and I want to float around on clouds. The spirit of the Holy Spirit, John 3, 5, gets put in you the day you accept Jesus to be your Savior, and you start to follow him. You start to transform. That's the beginning of a work that if you just take death out of the equation is going to keep going. That's the power of God. Love is the power of God. Read the book of John. Yes. Love is the power of God. Your ability to show up and love people and care for people and minister to people and be faithful. My goodness, that that's not normal. And that work starts to begin the day you love the Lord. Freedom from sin is the power of God. Man, when I was a believer, I, was just, I I felt like I was hooked on all these different things. And, and all of a sudden, the desire just evaporated. I was free from it. Temptation's still there, but I find that I can beat the temptation once in a while. And then after a few years, I can beat the temptation pretty consistently. But I know that the second the Spirit of God's gone, like I'm right back at that junk. And the power of God to transform the Spirit, our spirit of love, our freedom from sin. The power of God's incredible. And notice that it says here, you'll be like angels. It doesn't say you will be angels. Like that's a weird little belief that some people have. We're not going to be angels, right? And when somebody dies, they're not looking over you like an angel. No, they're, they're a different being. Angels are actually, um, I think the word is tele- 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 teleology, the authority of heaven. Angels are serving the saints and they serve at the throne of Jesus. So frankly, in our transformed state, we actually will have a, a position that will be over the angels. So we'll be like angels in that there will be a condition that we have that will make us so much more concerned about loving Jesus than about loving each other. Like honestly, the love in heaven is what gets exploded. And marriage is such a limited, like just one, two people connecting for life, right? Right. And I think the idea of serving the throne of Jesus will be like, we'll still know each other, we'll still love one another, but there will be that kind of relationship with a lot of people. And if we're not in the flesh, then you can take sex out of the equation, right? It's simply loving everyone we know in the same way that maybe a healthy marriage, we love one another there. But I think in heaven, love is just bigger. Like the power of God to explode love, it's pretty cool. I'm getting ready to watch a hippie movie so we can all just be like, God loves you. That's in the power that's a super powerful statement and then he says verse 26 but concerning the dead and he addresses the power of God he cites the Abraham Isaac Jacob and what he's pointing out there if you didn't catch it is that God's speaking in the present tense this is a statement that's made well after those three people have died but God says I am the God of Abraham it's not in the past tense I was the God of Abraham it says I am the God of Abraham and so in if they disagree with that, then they're calling their precious Torah inaccurate, which I'm sure the Sadducees are happy to do. Um, but in this case, that he's, what he's pointing out to them very quickly and easily is the Bible doesn't say that. And I think that's good for us. You're mistaken. That's not what the Bible says. Well, I don't care what the Bible says. And that's your problem. You haven't read it. You don't understand it. You don't know the power of God. I'm not going to have a discussion with you about it. But if you're talking about the things of the spirit, then let's talk about the things of the spirit. And you should be educated before you do that. But if you really want to meet God, I can tell you how to do that in language that a five-year-old can understand. I can break it down for you. It's really easy. Commit your life to the Lord God Almighty. Love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love other people as yourself. If you want to make that vow and that commitment, that's one of the big covenants. One of the covenants is marriage, which is part of this passage. Another covenant is to serve the kingdom of God and serve Jesus himself. And those are the two vows that he asks us to make in life. So if you understand marriage, you should be able to understand what that vow to the church is and what that looks like. It's kind of awesome. I know I'm taking this to the extreme, but it's an academic argument. Verse 28, I think the progression here is interesting. Then one of the scribes came, having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well and asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Can you feel the change of tone here? Jesus answered and the first of all the commandments is Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one and you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your, with all your mind, with all your strength. And this is the first commandment. And the second, like it is the second, like it is, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. We love these, right? These are verses we put on our walls. Notice that in chapter 11, verse 27, he was met at the door by three groups Verse 13, he's met by two groups. Verse 18, it's only some. And in verse 28, it's one of the scribes. Are you seeing the trend? Less and less people are feeling like they have something for him. Um, The size of the opposition gets smaller. Now we're down to just one person. And it says, having heard them reasoning, this person's actually listened to Jesus. Instead of calling him teacher, he's actually acting in such a way where Jesus is teaching him something. I just think this is great. He doesn't have to come in posture. The point is, is here, perceiving that he had answered them well, he's actually hearing what Jesus says and appreciates the answers. So he comes with an honest question. I Some commentators, some people read this and they think it's another trap question. I don't think it is. He's not approaching with the teacher title, the false teacher title. He's not approaching with a gotcha question. He's just saying, okay, you tell me what's the most important commandment. What's the biggest thing? Break this down to me like I'm a five-year-old. Tell me, like, I need to know this. Like, I, I, like I, I just want the simple, basic version. So I think this is a sincere question. It's not a, t- a tactic. Um, Jesus has upset so many people today that it's kind of nice to see that there's one person that's just come out of that crowd that really wants to know more. I want to know more about how to follow the Lord. I think that he senses not just the reasoning in verse 28, but there's a perception that happens. Something has happened to his heart where he wants to ask more and he wants to know more. And as believers, that's what we're looking for in hearts is that there's something going on where that hard heart is getting chopped up a little bit. The ground's getting broken up, ready for a seed. And so we look for that, which is the first commandment all is question question. This is again, an elementary school question. And Jesus gives him an elementary school answer. It is super simple actually if that I'm saying elementary school, the middle, I'll give you the middle school answer for this question is snarky. Here's the middle school answer for the question. What is the first commandment of all you say? You may eat of the garden. You may eat of the garden freely. That's the first commandment because, and only Mike gets that one. If you're a middle schooler, you get that chronologically, that's the first commandment, but the first here is being used as what's the greatest or the most important. So most All right. I'm in a room full of (laughs) grownups. So he gives them the simple version. Actually, you could go to Genesis two and be like, Hey, the real commandment was eat and get married. Like, but we'll get there. The most important ones, what we're looking for. Jesus answers in verse 29. I think it's, we can see a pattern here when they question him about authority. He tells them about ownership. Verse nine. When they question him about resurrection, he talks about the power of God, verse 24. When they question him about taxes, he talks about the obligation to God. And it's always just asking about the world, and then he goes in. But this is the first question that's asking about the law itself. And so he answers directly from the scripture. He gives them the Shema, straightforward answer. The Shema is um, this passage that is Deuteronomy 6.4. And the Jewish people at this period, actually to this day... Devout Jewish people recite the Shema three times a day. Morning, night, and morning, supper, nighttime. And you cite the Shema. You can do it in your head. You can do it out loud. But it's a declaration of faith three times a day. It's about a page long. So Jesus doesn't cite the entire thing. He incites a particular passage of it. The Shema today is made up of three different passages that have been put together. But the Shema at that point, the core of it is Deuteronomy 6. And they recite this so that the Jewish people have this thing. At Yom Kippur, the Shema is the quoted, everybody quotes it together. It's the final chapter of the feast. And everybody cites the Shema together, a dedication to the Lord God Almighty. So it's traditionally, uh, before you die, if if you do have the deathbed situation, the Jews have that covered. You recite the Shema before you die. It should be the first words out of your mouth when you learn to speak as a kid. And it's the first words, it's the last words out of your mouth when you die. The Shema is pretty important to the Jewish people. It still is. So Jesus cites it word for word from Deuteronomy 6.4 with one exception. Now, if I told you you had to say the same thing three times a day your entire life, and it's being drilled into you before you learn to speak, and on your deathbed you should say it, and every day at Yom Kippur we all say it together, if you screw that up, you are doing it intentionally. If I take a line where you all know the answer to it um, and then I change a word or I change something, it's going to ring like a bell, right? So you can take those kinds of things. I pledge of allegiance to the barbecue. You all can pick up when I change something. And, and that's one of the things I think that it's easy to just read through this. Um, but we should understand when there's something that in this, in this context would have stuck out like a sore thumb. And he changes the words. Hear, O Israel, Shema, Israel is the first two words. When we say Shema, that is the Hebrew for hear, O Israel. So the hear here is the Shema, is the, um, the first two words of it. That's where they get the name. Um, so Jesus says only the first and the third lines. He skips the second one. It's not a command, and the question was about a command. So he gives the commands from the Shema. And the command is to hear God and to love God. And then there's an expansion on both of those and what it means. So what do we do have to hear God better? We're going to first go through Jesus' answer. If we hear, if we have to, why do we have to hear? Um, because to hear God is to make him your God. To listen to him is to, to hear, have the words of God in your head at least once a week, bare minimum once a week. Um, and we always encourage you, like, be in your own Bible study too. But to put those words through your head, that's a good start to any kind of situation. So before any other law, you have to actually hear God and love what he says. Otherwise, it's not, uh, this is a weird thing. Christians often will tell non-Christians how to live their life. Why? They're not following God's law. They have nothing to do with God's law. Why would we harp at them about how they act and what they behave and what they put in their body or what they do to their bodies? Who cares? You're not living under God's law, doing your own thing. One thing's just as bad as the other. But Jesus treats these two things as one. To hear God and to love God is one thing. And it's a fitting idea. It has a lot of facets to it. They're necessarily the same thing. This is a legal argument. We can hear the law of God and not love, and we, we really just become legalists. And, and, and we really didn't hear it in our soul. We can hear the law of God and not love God, and then we're loving empty things of the world while we know God's law. You cannot hear the law of God and love yourself, So you can do it that way, and that's pretty much vanity. Or you can, there are, as a syllogism tends to work, you have to both hear the law and love God. There's no outside territory. They're the same thing, and Jesus treats it that way. If you hear God and you don't do it, you are false. If you do things but you're not doing them in the name of God or because you've heard God and he's moved you to do those things, you're doing it in vanity. And it's like a theme of the entire Bible. Jesus sums it up very quickly. It's why the Shema was a big deal to the Jewish people. It's beautifully said. Jesus taught others to deny their self and follow him. Maybe he hoped they would, maybe this question was a trap question and they were hoping he would say that. Will you have to follow me because he has said that in his ministry before. It's not inconsistent. However, that if we follow God, we are following Jesus and that's part of what he's teaching here. So the love thing. So we have to hear God. how how do we love God? What does that look like? He says, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. All in, baby. That's how you love God. There's only one way to do it. Make it your life. So everything else doesn't amount to much. That doesn't make everything else evil. It just means it's empty. So if I'm going to go play with my Star Wars action figures, I'm fully aware that's not doing anything for the kingdom of God. That's just me having fun with my action figures. Right? And so... To love God or love those action figures more than the things of God, that becomes a problem. But there's nothing essentially wrong with me playing with my action figures. It's been a while. Jesus makes one addition in this line, and this is the part that sticks out. Every person in the room, even the Romans, have heard this Shema a billion times. They would all hear this. It's a daily thing that they say, and it's, it's like a famous song that you're changing the words to, and it's the, the changing of the words that makes it there. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What did God add? What did Jesus add? He added your mind. Look at the beginning of this passage. One of the scribes came, having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he answered them well. It was his mind that drew him to Jesus Christ. This is a mind question. It was something where, and, and I do, some people come to Lord because they just love the plan of salvation and they come from emotion. Great. Some people come to the Lord because intellectually, it's a quandary they got to unpack. And that is something that drives this guy to him. And Jesus adds in with all your mind to a guy who's heavy on the mind side. Look at who he's talking to. And when he changes these words, he's doing it to talk to a human being that he knows because he's Jesus. He knows this guy intimately. And he says, because if you just say all your heart, this guy's probably not very emotional. All your soul. I don't know exactly what that is. All my strength? Well, I'm a weak scribe. <laughs> like, I'm, I don't have a lot of strength to give. But he says, all your mind. Give him your brain. Submit that brain to what the Word of God says and watch that intellect come alive. And be smarter than you've ever been. Give him that mind of yours that you think is so great. Jesus makes that addition. Everybody in the audience would hear it, but I think especially this particular person would have heard that. Give him your mind. So he changes the Old Testament. He adds to it. We're told as human beings, we're not supposed to add to the word of God or subtract from it. Watch what he does now. Well, the next line he subtracts. So he does both. What is he saying when he does that? You could argue he's breaking the law of God unless he's God himself. And he can then change and add to and take away from the word of God. But if you don't believe he's God himself, the Messiah, this is something that's really on the edge. And that's what Jesus has been doing all chapter. With all your mind, verse 28, he hears them reasoning. He walks up. He's, Jesus is emphasizing this new era by adding something to it. Here's the other thing. Here's another thought. Um, if you go to Deuteronomy eleven thirteen, 13, there's a, a version of the Shema there that doesn't include strength. It just says, give the Lord God your whole heart and your whole soul. So there is background in the Old Testament where the Shema is something that is movable. It can be restated because the Old Testament restates it in chapter 6 and in chapter 11 and they're not quite the same, meaning it's not a recitation. But the Jews have made it into a recitation. So when Jesus changes it, you could argue he doesn't break the law at all, even in the incarnate version, because the Old Testament itself does it in two different versions. Does that make sense? All right. So so he speaks to this guy, this guy that appreciates reason and thinking. Uh, Jesus gives him that argument too. Give him everything you are is the whole point of the Shema. So if, if there's other elements of your life, what's the most important command? Give everything you have to the Lord. And the second is like this, verse 31. Jesus adds another thought. And really, I think this is, it's really three in one. Hear and love God and love your neighbor. He gives three laws. And if you think about this, uh, this one's just for Lisa. We hear the Father, we love the Son incarnate, and we. the Holy Spirit helps us to love one another. And so if you're thinking about interacting with God as a trinity, like the hear, the love, and love your neighbor become a, a, a whole package, three in one, so to speak. And it says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This comes from Leviticus 19.18 really cool what he's doing here. It's a small, less known command. It is not one that was famous amongst the Jewish people. It was not recited every day. In fact, it was largely forgotten. Why was it forgotten? Uh, I'll read you the verse Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then this is the part Jesus leaves out. I am the Lord. Now, a scribe would know the end of that verse. It's one verse. There's no punctuation that separates it. It is God claiming authority over judgment situations after he spent an entire day being judged. And it has the statement, I am the Lord. So when Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he should have finished that with, I am the Lord. He leaves that off. And anybody that knows the verse would know exactly what he didn't say. It's a claim to deity. So I just like, I don't want to get too far off the point because you can just read this straight up. Love God, love your neighbor. That's a wonderful message. Pack that up, put it in your pocket and you can live your week with that. That's great. This is a scholarly debate and I love the scholarship of this thing. I love how it breaks down. So in the Shema, he glaringly adds the mind piece. On this verse, he glaringly doesn't finish the sentence. And in both cases, he has done the thing that only God shall do. He's teaching with total authority. The word love here is a command that the entire priesthood is breaking. (laughs) They're they're holding a grudge against Jesus. They're taking vengeance. They're plotting vengeance in the back room right now. And so when he brings this up, He's, he's brought up this obscure kind of passage that's tucked between other things before love your neighbor as yourself. It says, don't take vengeance, which he just taught the disciples in chapter 11. After this passage, it says, you shall keep my statutes. And it goes on to talk about livestock laws, like how to treat cows. Like this is in Leviticus where you got all these laws just packed in on top of each other. So he's showing total command of the old Testament when he does this. I just think it's great. There's no other commandment greater than these. It's interesting that he takes the no other commandment is singular in the Greek and is greater than these is a set or a plural. Again, three in one. All three of these come together as one thing. Can't pick and choose. Well, I love the Lord, but I don't get along well with people. Ah, if you're a believer, figure out how to get along with people. Well, I get along great in the church. I'm just not very spiritual. Ah, figure out how to pray and read the word. Learn to love. It's one thing, no, no greater commandment, singular. That said, we can read this for what it is. It's about love. The most important thing is love. But we often need to understand that when we disregard things like loving one another, we're disregarding the greatest commandment there is. If you think there's anything in the ministry or the kingdom of God that's more important than loving one another and loving God, you're wrong. You're defying the teaching of Jesus Christ. And this is something I think in the church we have to watch out for false teachers that emphasize action over love. There's just nothing you're obligated to do other than love God and love your neighbor. There's no greater commandment than these. And I just want to emphasize that because Jesus emphasized that. What's the biggest thing? Figure out how to love people. Minister to one another in the church. This is a great trial ground. He gives us once a week. He gives us a testing ground to play with things and try things where nobody's going to judge you if you do it wrong or awkwardly. Give it a shot. Love takes relationships. It's it's relational by implication. Love takes sacrifice. You give things up for other people. Love takes an investment of your life, which means you take your precious time and commit that to other people. Like it's not your time anymore because you gave it to Jesus in the first place. That's love. It takes work to do love. It's so much easier to go put food in a food shelf. Way easier. So much harder to spend time with people. The early followers spent a lot of time on this love topic. You can read through the epistles. Love tends to be at the middle of those. Why? Because Jesus said that's the key. That's the thing that makes the whole kingdom tick. If you can, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 13. You've heard these verses, but listen to them in the light of Jesus. Though I speak with tongues of men and angels, but I not have love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. I'm just noise. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, I'm all in on all that stuff so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love. I am nothing. I, I, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my mind to be burned, my body to be burned, and I don't have love, it profits me nothing. If you can't figure out how to be a friend, you're going to you're gonna, you're gonna lack spiritual blessing in your life. Because that's what makes the whole thing tick. Learn how to be a friend. Learn how to be a husband, a wife, a, a, a son or a daughter, a father, a mother. Learn how to do those relationships well before you worry about anything else in the kingdom. Be a good sister. Be a good brother. We, we, Grant got to hear that like probably thousands of times. Be a good brother. Be a big, good big brother. What does a big brother mean? What does it mean to be a big brother? And Grant probably got sick of hearing that over the years. Your ministries mean nothing if there isn't a loving relationship at the middle of your life. Just nothing. It's just noise or vanity. <laughs> Listen to this. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 13.4, love suffers long and it's kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't parade itself. <laughs> like that. Love doesn't walk into a room and expect attention. <laughs> love doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. You meet somebody that's full of love, they're not puffed up. They don't need to be puffed up. Love doesn't behave rudely. We've talked a lot about that. Love doesn't act rude, ever. Love doesn't seek its own. I just want this for me. Love doesn't do that. That's not how love acts. It's how we act. It's not how love does. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Sometimes you got to put up with wackos like me. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there's tongues, they'll, they'll cease. And whether there's knowledge, it'll vanish away. And this is where this story started. He heard them reasoning and something tugged at his heart. And Jesus adds that mind piece, and I think the disciples are chewing on this for decades after it happens. We don't need faith when we get to heaven because we'll see everything in first person. Faith will go away. We don't need hope when Jesus returns because the action will already have happened. We don't have to hope anymore. He's arrived. Hope will fade away. Love endures. Love goes on for all eternity. We hear God. We love God. We love our neighbor. I, that is the elementary version of this, not the middle school version. That's the elementary version. Elsewhere Jesus describes the neighbors. All that from this, verse 29, <coughs> Jesus answered him, "The first of all commandments is, "Hero Israel, the Lord God, Lord our God is uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind." and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no other commandment greater than these. Simple, deep, rich, robust, lots to chew on. Verse 20, 32, so the scribe said to him, well said, teacher. Notice he says teacher after he's heard and learned from this person. You're not a teacher until somebody's learned something from you. Don't, don't put the name up front, put the name after you've listened. So he calls him teacher but he does it after he's heard and he says, you have spoken the truth. he identifies that Jesus is speaking true for there is one God and there is no other but he and to love him with all the heart with all the understanding, with all the soul with all the strength do you notice that he added it in but he moved it up a notch and with to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices while they sit in the temple he's saying this. you're right. Love's more important than the show. Love's more important than the gilded temple and the sacrifices that are in it. He agrees, and he answers back to Jesus and reframes it. This isn't something to recite. It's something to know. So when he puts it back, he does it in his own words, slightly reframes it a little bit. And I, th- I think that's an important addition. Um, and, he, and he uses the term teacher here because he's, been, he's just been a student. So he hears, he listens. Now, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, so we're told that this is a good answer, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one (laughs) dared to question him, right? That means the testing is over. He's been seen without blemish in the middle of the temple on the day that they inspect sheep for Passover sacrifice. And he's been seen with no one's left. The crowds, the crowds of critics got narrower and narrower. This one last person gives the slam dunk answer and people are like, I'm just going to listen to this guy. So then in verse 35, he answers and said, there's been no question. So is he reading people's mind that there's still questions in the room? I mean, maybe he's even handling the, the, the testing of the heart at this point because nobody's actually coming forward to ask him. But Jesus answers this non-questioner At this point, Jesus is just teaching. Now that he's been seen as pure, there's only two things left. March him up to the altar and sacrifice him as a Passover lamb. And on the way, he wants you to know a few things. Now that we know he's the Passover lamb. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, like I'm thinking he's there all day just teaching people the kingdom of God. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him him Lord. How is he then his son? Well, this is, again, written in the thick academic legal arguments. This one's theological. Notice that he's done political. He's done all these different kinds of areas. I'll get to that in a bit. In this question, Jesus is teaching them about what really matters. How do you deal with this, this idea that Messiah is God? How do you deal with that? So the quote he's using here is from Psalm 110. It's a messianic song. Um, Messiah will rule. He'll have a a kingdom of volunteers. He'll be a non-Levite priest of Melchizedek, and he'll be the judge of all. That's the promise of Psalm 110, if you sum up that psalm. It goes to the absolute heart of it. Who is the Christ, and how do we reconcile this idea that he'll be a son of David? Do they really understand the promise of Christ? And do they get what the Christ is? So Jesus is a descendant of David biologically, but he's also the Lord of David spiritually. And so this is more than bi- biology. In chapter 10, when Bartimaeus came running up to him, do you remember what title he gave him? Son of David. Bartimaeus saw Jesus as a descendant of David taking the throne of David, right? It's the only time that gets used. At the end of the conversation after Bartimaeus is healed, He calls Jesus Rabboni, an affectionate term for teacher, my teacher, my beloved teacher. He stops using the term son of David because Jesus is more than just the son of David as defined by this passage. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. David calls him Lord, not just his son. So the common people heard him gladly. Is the other piece of this. Jesus is reaching people. um, And I, you know, this idea that so now that he's dealt with all the fuddy-duddies, he can actually deal with real people. And he talks directly to the crowd. Matthew has this story. Luke has this story. This is a kind of a key piece of what's going on in the temple today. Verse 38, Then he said to him in his teaching, Beware the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, best seats in the synagogues, the best places at the feasts, who devour the widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now we're picking a fight. They took their shots at him. Now he's taking their shots at them. And he doesn't come at them with gotcha questions. He just names what everybody can see. These guys are fake. And so beware of the scribes. The scribes were the teachers of the law, they were the professors of the day, they were the academic learned ones. You took a class from a scribe, that's where you went. Uh, he points out what they, what they do and how we measure character by those people. When you pick your teachers, understand who they are as a person. And so he gives you a few things to look at when you look at teachers. And being an academic myself, having been a long robe wearing, you know, actually you get long robes even today. I have my robes in the closet upstairs. They're fancy, they're felt, they're thick. I feel pretty awesome when I'm wearing them. I march around in them. You know, I'm a prof. Um, they don't mean a lot. And people that put their pride in those things, uh, that's a dangerous thing. Long robes are an indication of role and position, but they also say this. If I'm wearing my long robe, I'm not out doing concrete work. If I got my long robes on, I'm not doing carpentry and getting them all dusty. If I got my long robes on, I don't bother to do hard work ever. I'm soft. If I wear those robes too long, my hands will lose their calluses. I become soft. Scholars didn't do those things. These are measures of pride. How do you know if you're dealing with a prideful person? I think it's important that he was tested by the scribes, and then he had this one scribe come ask him an honest question, which means there's good scribes and bad scribes, right? So how do you tell the difference between them? And Jesus is kind of telling them how to, how to identify who they are. So one is, they don't like to do hard work themselves. They won't dig in and do it. They always get their son to do their work for them, right? Do this, do that, change the locks, fix that, paint the walls, one way to identify pride, not the only way, there's more. They love greetings. What does that mean? They like to be recognized. They like to be famous. I got to tell you, one of the best things in the world is when I'd go to a conference as the keynote keynote speaker at the conference, and everybody knew who you were. Like This is a small community of people, and they all know who you are. It is hard to not get puffed up when you're in that situation. You're, you're just like, yeah, this kind of feels good. I, I'm the man at this situation. I think that's true. Anybody that's seen by people or talks to people, they become mistaken that because others like them, that they're more holy than there were without people liking them. And it does go to your head a little bit, right? They love the greetings. They love when people recognize them. They love the best seats. They want courtside at the games. They want the the box seat at the theater. They love to be in those seats where everybody recognizes how important they are. Why? They like the position that leadership offers them. Leadership does have some perks to it. Right? I get to see all of you, but you don't get to see each other. Just the positioning of where we're sitting. But to like those seats, to love that seat, means you don't want to let it go. Right, You appreciate it. So it's one thing to be a teacher that knows that at any given day, I can go be a student. I can sit out in the audience just as much as sitting in front. doesn't matter to me. They like the synagogues. Most important in the religious matters. They love it when you get the best seat in the synagogue. You go to church, you've got the front row pew. You get the desk, you know, they love that seat. That's really important to them. They get the lazy boy when they come to church and some people get here early just so they can get that, but they adore it more so than they love learning about God and loving God. And that's the danger. They love the best seats. Feasts. They like the the best place at the feasts too. So in religious matters at the synagogue, social matters at the feasts. You know, this is just one of those things. They just they like to be in that position where everybody likes them and looks to them. But then they devour widows' houses. What does that mean? Teachers weren't paid in the first century. The scribes weren't paid. They took tithe money, and they were in the temple. Took care of them. They got food. They got a place to live. But they weren't paid. But what the Jewish people had done is they allowed gifts to be given, right? And so you get an old widow. She's got maybe some money, but let's assume they've got some cash and they have this big, beautiful heart and they just love to give to people they care for. So they, they're, they're happy to give gifts. Um, and there's a difference between taking these gifts with the Jewish people allowed, um, but what they would do is the scribes would go after those widows, right? Instead of loving and caring for everybody equal, they'd give a little special attention to Aunt Ethel because Aunt Theth- Ethel had a ton of money and Aunt Ethel can, you know, make sure that we we get some new robes next week. And so they would do this, and they paid a special attention to especially lonely widows, widows that wanted that attention. So the widows got their attention, and these scribes would get the money. And in the first century, that was just a known thing. And it was something that they would do. So, in fact, in the first century, part of the teachings of the, the Midrash, Uh, it it actually encouraged giving to teachers and they had even elevated the gifts to teachers as the most holy thing you could do. Not giving to the temple, giving to teachers was the most holy thing you could do. It was the greatest deed. Essentially they liked the people that taught that were the people that got the gifts, right? If you want to be more holy, give more money. So it's pretense is what he says. It's a pretense, pretense for long prayers. A pretense is a Pretending to be one, it's counterfeit. Counterfeit money might go at the gas station, but when anybody takes a good look at it, it doesn't sell at all. And counterfeit holiness, it's the same thing. It might play on a Sunday morning when somebody's on a stage, when you see their life and who they are. If it's counterfeit, it doesn't really go very far, it doesn't sell at all. And one of the pretense is, and for a pretense to make long prayers, the whole point of the greed, of the pride, of the puffed upness, the whole point of that is so they can make long prayers. I like that Jesus critiques long prayers, I'm frankly. Um, prayers is intimate. is like talking about money with people. Everybody prays different. I get that. Some people like to pray in King James. I get that. What does it mean to do long prayers? In the first century, some of these scribes, before they taught the word... So they would come into a room, everybody would gather around, three sides. There would be the teacher, would stand up and do a reading from God's scriptures. And then the the teacher would sit down and say, what questions do we have about the reading? And the Jewish people would have a discourse or a set of questions back and forth. The long prayer would happen to extend their time on the stage. So some of these scribes would pray for 20 minutes. And they would do their sermons through their prayer voice, right? And so it's, one, it's, it's this idea of loving being on display. That said, long prayers aren't bad. If you take the whole counsel of God, there are people that pray. Jesus prayed all night. That's a pretty long prayer, right? Nothing wrong with long prayers. It's the pretense of being on display and making other people listen to your prayers. You want to pray for 20 minutes straight. That's an absolute blessing. If you look at the word of God, you and God, thank you. Don't make other people listen to that. So the pretense of long prayers is wanting other people to hear it, um, and and I, I just want to think through that idea a little bit when we think about praying, because for some people this is like okay, well then how do I pray? If you think a person's hard of hearing, a natural tendency is we raise our voice, right? We get a little louder. Is God hard of hearing? Here's another one: if you think somebody's prideful and you want something from them, we naturally use flattery because we know it'll work. Does God need your flattery? Is he prideful like that? When we think a person person's stupid, we tend to th- slow things down and explain things more carefully and longer and put bigger gaps between our words. We don't talk normal anymore. We talk to somebody who needs to hear it. And it's a very belittling thing. Is God stupid? So if God can hear you fine and he's not stupid and he doesn't need your flattery, then we we talk to God not in an, in, a, in an extended way. And I think long prayers is about this. We don't create an entire language of prayer with God. We just talk to him normally. Talk to him like you talk to a human being, right? Because he hears you. He knows what you're saying. He actually knows your heart before you pray it. Prayer is more about us getting aligned with God than about us changing God. So We don't, when you are talking to somebody who has position, power, and authority, think of how we change our discourse with those people. When we're dealing with somebody who's clearly in authority, oftentimes we get more succinct, we get clearer, and, and think about like military talk. Sir, we have a problem. Lord, we need help in this thing. Please help. We get succinct when we're talking because we don't want to waste their time. So there's this idea that, and that goes counter to the fact if, and I'll give you this one too, because God is both in authority where we might be succinct, but God is also our father, our Abba, the one who cares for us and loves us. And when you're talking to somebody who you love, you can talk for hours, right? The whole night's gone. When Steph and I were dating, actually, even today, sometimes we'll get to talking three, four, five hours, Grant and Katie will walk in and be like, oh, they're still talking and they'll leave. When you're talking with somebody you love, time just flies. You can go forever. So we got both in an almighty God. We have both a father in heaven, and we have a father who loves us in heaven. And when we talk to somebody who's in authority, we're direct and clear. We don't need any more than that. When we talk to somebody who loves us, we tell them everything. Here's how my day went. I did this. I went down here. Lord, this is great. I could see what you were doing there. And there's people that their prayer life is absolutely a debrief on the day every day, and it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Jesus lovingly invites us to prayer, but he doesn't need loud, flattering, or elaborate ones. Pretenses. He doesn't need us to pretend we're something different when we pray to him. He wants us to just be ourselves. And I hope that's a blessing. I hope that's a word of blessing. Jesus teaches them to pray in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. few sentences. How do we pray? They're asking, how do we pray? Because they had scribes that would do these long prayers. These extended, elaborate things. And so the disciples are like, okay, you're changing everything. How do we do prayer? And he's like, just pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be his name. He just gives them a very simple, direct thing. You know, again, when you talk to somebody in authority, you use the title, you know, And, and, and understanding your position before God is a good way to start your prayer. Giving your desires and your hopes directly and clearly, that's a good way to pray. Putting your hope in the Lord and wrapping it up, that's a good way to pray. He says, beware the scribes because they look good, they presume their position, and they fill up all of our Christian bookstores. But you have to be wary when you're dealing with those people, right? They think they know everything, but they often know things that aren't the word of God. And they've come up with human thinking and human reason that can often lead people astray. And they creep up. The more the church throughout history over 2,000 years, the more the church doesn't read the scriptures, the more these scribes pop up. And you'll get experts and opinions and holy leaders that are really teaching their own opinion and they're not teaching God's word. And they do pop up historically every time the church fails to go back to the word of God. Because there's going to be people that want to fill that gap for you. They want to do the reading for you and tell you what to do. And then you get this passage, greater condemnation. Mark six eleven implies the same thing. When we get judged before God... God will judge us in different ways. Some people have greater condemnation. That implies there's different levels of this. I don't even want to touch that. Like that's an entire biblical thesis. But I can accept the fact that God's smart enough to judge people according to what they've done and how they've acted and who they are. And God generally hates the arrogant and he loves the humble. So which of the two do I want to be when I go before God? So in contrast to the scribe, Jesus just talked about the scribe. He turns and looks. Now Jesus sat opposite. I wonder if he sat here intentionally. Like this was like the temple courtyard's a big place. And to have eyeline to that drop box. I'm wondering if Jesus picked his spot. He sat opposite the treasury and saw. So he's given this talk about the scribes. Watch out for these people. They don't know what they're talking about. God's word knows what it's talking about. Trust God's word. And then he looks across and he sees this little old lady. Now the treasury thing, they would stand in line. So you'd wait your turn to put things in there. And so it says, verse 41, Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. I'm sure they made a show of it. They wanted everybody to see how much they put in. And then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrant, quadrants, And so he called his disciples to himself and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now Jesus is doing this an entire day of teaching and this is kind of the wrap up on this he's talking about the heart all the way through. He sees, God sees what we give. He saw how the people give. And I think giving is a tough topic. Again, we get all these great topics today. God sees us when we give to him. Now their giving to the temple here. seems to be irrelevant that it's the same scribes. He just said, woe to that are living off of that money and those gifts. And Jesus makes a total difference. He's saying, woe to the scribes and Pharisees, but then he's actually rewarding the heart with which this woman gives. So giving, again, it's not about which teachers you're supporting and what you're doing like that, but it is about the heart with which we do it and the fact that we do it, right? So what heart do we have? He saw how the people gave, and he's not concerned with amount at all. That whole point of the story is it doesn't matter how much you give. It has nothing to do with how much. I'll say that again. It has to do with how you do it, how you give, what it means. The treasury there is a free will box. You got to go back to Joash in 2 Kings 12. We just did this in the night Bible study. Temple needed repairs, it was falling apart. And the burnt offerings and the tithe money that the families would bring in, that took care of the priests and their families. But then they had this free will offering. What Joash did is he said, I want you to just collect anybody who wants to contribute. We got to fix up the temple. And he did it for a while and the priest started corruptly taking that money. And instead of like making a thing out of it in 2 Kings 12, uh, 4, Joash said to the priests, all the money and dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring to the house of the Lord. It was a free will offering no obligation, this is not tithing, this is just above and beyond what you'd normally give, if you want to help out with fixing up the temple, here's a box Uh, after they started stealing it, we get the invention of the first piggy bank, he takes a big box, seals it and locks it and puts a slit in the top and uh they bored a hole in its lid and set it beside the altar. On the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord, which means we know where Jesus was sitting when he said this. And the priests who kept the door put there all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. The only money that should have been in the temple courtyard was money going into that box. Those denarii we just got done talking about should be in the box. So this idea that... Uh, it was about God's work getting done. It's that extra thing. We get the word mites here. That's the Greek, uh, in the Greek, that's the lepta or the tiny bit, a bauble. In other words, a mite could have not even been a coin. It could have been like her favorite gem stone or something and without value, you know, like an agate. It could have just been, a mite could have been anything. It's just a bauble, right? A plastic piece of something. And she gave a morsel or a scrap is what's there. It's to the degree to where we have to define it, the two mites, which makes a quadrants. It's a very small amount and it's further defined for people that didn't know what it was. Everybody knew what a denarius was, but two mites that he had to define it by saying a quadron, a quadron was 1% of a denarius. In other words, if you take a denarius as a day's wage, say a hundred bucks, a quadrant's about a dollar. So this old lady comes up. She's not the rich widow that the scribes are devouring. She's the very poor widow that's destitute. She comes up and puts a dollar in the free will box. She didn't have to give it. It was way above her tithe money. So the idea that the rich put in much, and you can see it, but you can also see what she's doing, says that chest is likely right next to the altar still. It's where outward where people can see it. And so it's not hidden. It's not hidden away. And some give to God because they want to show people what they have. Some give to God. It doesn't hurt very much when you make okay money. That 10% doesn't hurt at all. And it's not hard to tithe when you have money coming in. But talk to any good financial manager. And tithing is a disposition of the heart. And you start to tithe in a way that you grow up tithing and you get used to it. It's, if you do it for years and years and years, it doesn't hurt at all. It's just part of life. Um, but the hardest thing to do is to do it when you you are tight and you're tight on that fund. And again, this isn't an appeal. This is a free will box. This has nothing to do with tithe, right? I think we need to separate that. The fact that this widow is giving a little bit extra and she doesn't have to says everything about her love of God and about her heart. So 44, they put in out of abundance, but she puts in out of poverty and her whole livelihood. Like She's trusting that the Lord's going to take care of her in every way, shape, and form. And so this kind of giving is just an exception. It's exceptional. It's not a teaching that we should all give like the widow. It's, it's pointing out the widow is truly exceptional. And that God sees that kind of gift and actually recognizes it. And to God, this is more important than anything else. The principle here should be really clear. And I think when we deal with money, you get all sorts of people that take it in different directions. The spirit of giving is more important than the amount of the giving. The spirit of the giving is more important than the amount the discipline of it. We can all please God. It has nothing to do with what we have. One, There's different ways to mistake this. One mistake is, I'll give when I have more. and this, this really shatters that image. You don't give someday when you get more. You give now because it's about your heart. God wants us to be a giver in general. So we come up with this idea. It's not obligatory. It's, I'm going to give because God loved me and I love God, so I'll obey God. And here's a free will box. Once in a while, I'm going to give just to tell God I love him even more. So we don't give out of obligation, like we're losing our money. We give out of obedience because it's God's money to start with. We're not really giving up anything. We're giving up what what has landed in our lap because God saw fit for it to land there. So the idea of giving has nothing to do with God being broke. Again, the temple got fixed. There was more than enough. They even built some extra implements with the extra money. It's not because God's broke or because we need things. When you have religious leaders or scribes that go to their congregations asking for more money, I'm just, we may disagree when we have this discussion. I think that's flat out sin. You should never go to your congregation asking for money. Cut some ministries. Stop doing some of the things you used to be doing. Buy a smaller building. You know, so those ideas of of trusting that God's going to give the ministry exactly what it needs to do the work it's going to do, it's a true, it's a true element of what God does. We participate in God's work, but we don't do it begrudgingly ever. And when there's a movement that happens, God will move groups of people in a certain direction to do things. So we sacrifice some of his blessing and convert it to heavenly blessing. Money's treated as an investment in heaven. And Jesus is saying, I'm looking at that woman and look at how she's doing her ministry compared to the scribes that he just got done talking about. It's all his. In fact, if everything's God and he only asks us for a tenth, that's pretty dang generous. You know, you can live off 90% of what I provide for you. So we, we move that way. And this mites doing even the the widow with the mites is doing even more than that because she loves the Lord. It's the only area God asks us to test him. As long as we're in money, I'm going to read Malachi 3.10. It's the only area in our life where God invites us to test him. After Jesus has just gotten done being tested for an entire day, even multiple days, you could argue all this testing in the temple courtyard and we end on a topic, which is the only area where, so if, you know, Malachi 3.10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And now try me in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I, the Lord of armies, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. He's talking to the nation of Israel when he says that not an individual, but this idea of, You take all those tithes and bring them into the storehouse instead of greedily taking them for yourself. um, Watch what will happen. Never doubt this. God's not a debtor, and he won't be in debt to you. If you're giving things to the Lord, he will make that right, either here or in heaven. Um, And you look at David when he was broke, he was homeless, and he went into the temple and, and they offered to just like take care of the sacrifices. And in 2 Samuel 24, he says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to give something that doesn't cost me anything. He didn't use his position and title to just take advantage of people, to devour, you know, lonely priests in the wilderness. He actually paid for the, the things that he paid paid for the threshing floor, did it out of his own pocket. So even though he's in need, he's sacrificed and that's what the heart's all about. It wouldn't have been, it it would have been, I I just want to end on a nicer note because all this testing, Jesus just got tested in all five major disciplines of thought during this era, authority, politics, doctrine, conjecture, and consequential lifestyle. Those are the four areas that priests should master, Uh, five areas, I'm sorry. And so he just went through all five of those areas in each of these stories. So we should know there's some context there showing, um, absolute authority and expertise in every single one of these areas of discipline. Usually priests would specialize in one of the five, which is why different priests would come and question him in different areas. So he's showing mastery of all five disciplines. If this were a kung fu movie, he would be the master kung fu artist because he's mastered all different styles. Uh, So we get that. It would have been really neat if when he walked in, the elders, the scribes, and the Pharisees recognized their messiah. And I don't want to lose that picture. What if Jesus came in on the triumphant entry and all these priests, scribes and elders just said, it's our Messiah. Welcome here. Instead of testing him, they would have brought everything in the storehouse and put it at the feet of Jesus and said, here's all the resources of the temple that we've been stewards of for you. What do you want to do next? And, or even better. We're going to empty the storehouse because Messiah's arrived and we're going to have a party like the world has never, ever seen. We're going to take all of the temple resources and throw a feast just like the days of old. And we're going to feed 2 million people in Jerusalem the best barbecue they've ever had. That should have been their response. And so I think, again, it's interesting when he talks about these miserly scribes, these greedy people, and then he points out the widow at the end of it and her just giving what she has out of love and out of care, what would it have been like if the elders, scribes, and Pharisees acted the same way and they just said, Messiah is here, break open the piggy bank. This is what that money is for, to pour it out and to give it to the Lord. Try me now in this, God says back in Malachi 3.10. You want to try the Lord God Almighty? Try bringing him those things and see if he doesn't just bless the heck out of you. What if they would have done exactly what they were told to do in the Old Testament when Messiah showed up? And they gave Jesus full authority. They brought out the robes. Here's your high priest robes. They brought out the crown. Here's your crown, King Jesus. They brought out the prophecy. Here's the word of God. You got your scrolls here. We got scribes ready to write down every word you're going to say. Think of what would have happened in human history if they would have responded like that. They just gave him the authority he was due. I can tell you the owner would have been pretty happy of the vineyard. The owner would have been thrilled. Oh, finally I sent my son and they responded to him and sent everything back. I'm going to bless these. They're good stewards of my vineyard. They just wanted to make sure they were giving it to the right person. I, you know, when he leaves, he leaves the temple tested, proven, and he claims all authority. And there is a progression. Um, I, I think that we see this idea that um, back in chapter 11, verse 11, if you want to fly through this, he comes in as a king. In verse 15, he has the priest's authority. In verse 12, he went away and nobody answered him. In verse 14, he's called teacher. In verse 19, he's called teacher. In verse 24, the Sadducee is mistaken and he corrects the bad teachers. In verse 32, an accepting person says, well said teacher. So he is in throughout this entire narrative, he has absolutely claimed authority over everything. Verse 34, where we're at, no one dared challenge his authority anymore. He just took the authority. They didn't give it to him willingly and gracefully. He just came in and gracefully took it. And then in verse 37, um, we see the people's hearts and and that idea of just that the hearts changing because of Jesus Christ. And I and and you you understand. And the people heard him gladly. That Jesus wasn't there to just say woe to the scribes. He was also there to win over the people and to see that their hearts came to the Lord. And so you had that piece. Tons in Mark chapter 12. um, Tons of things there. But I do think like, the blessing for me in all of this is just how masterfully Jesus just handles all of this and does it with complete control. Not in a mean, like, overbearing way, but in just like he has... This authority that's just doesn't need to be big or bold or puffed up. It's just authority, and it is what it is. So that's a blessing, and it's something for us to model. And I hope that's helpful, and I hope next time you're in a conversation with somebody that's challenging the authority of Jesus, you have ways to respond to that that are loving and graceful and kind. Um, And when you have to respond to a Sadducee, you can tell them they're mistaken, and then we'll know why they're sad. So get there. Let's pray dear lord we thank you for your word we thank you for these lessons we thank you for uh, mark that wrote these things down so that we would have them we thank you for the witnesses that saw it we thank you that you trusted um, humanity not only to carry the message of the jews for thousands of years but you've trusted your church to carry your message for thousands of years lord all of this you're looking for the widow that will give of what her life comes from and give those things that are are hers and, and precious to her, Lord. And we, we know that you're asking not for our money, but for our heart, our soul, our strength, and our minds. And you want those things that are gods that belong to gods, and you're claiming those things of us. So Lord, help, them, help us to give them to you and to do it in joy. Lord, if we don't see the joy in the walk with Christ and in the kingdom, change our hearts. Help us to see where there's joy in it, where there's life in it. Move us, Lord, so we don't want to have to things to do with this world. Move, change us in that way. Lord, help our soil to be tilled and soft and ready for the seeds of your word each week. Lord, help us when we engage with the the critics and the people challenging, they're still here today. Lord, help us to do it in such a way where we know that people are watching and people are listening, that the crowds matter too, and that you often will go after the common and the humble-hearted, and that you're seeing that from heaven in a way that uh, we don't tend to see on earth. Lord, help us to see things with your eyes, to hear things with your ears, and to be a blessing to those around us. Help us to learn love like a discipline. And we, we learn it backwards and forwards because we love you, and we love others because you told us to. And Lord, bring joy in all of that. Be with this feast that we're about to eat and help us to enjoy it in love and as family in Jesus' name.